Welcome to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today, for our very last episode of this season, we're speaking with poet and essayist Joanna Penn Cooper. Joanna is the author of The Itinerant Girl's Guide to Self-Hypnosis and What is a Domicile? Joanna holds a PhD in English from Temple University and has taught at Marquette University and Fordham University. Her work has appeared in the Academy of American Poets Poem a Day, South Dakota Review, Zocalo Public Square, Open Letters Monthly, Poetry International, and many other journals. She teaches online workshops in flash memoir and lyric essay for creative nonfiction. A new chapbook, When We Were Fearsome, is out this month from Ethel Zine. So I've never actually met Joanna in person. We were introduced through a mutual friend of ours, Brendan Constantine, a poet based in Los Angeles, and he had highly recommended Joanna as a poet that had a lot of interesting things to say, that her work ranged over a variety of topics, and that she had some very particular and interesting fascinations and obsessions. And so this conversation ends up going over uh, several of those, but we begin first with her obsession with secrets. For me, one of the things that, that fascinates me about literature and what writing can do is it offers us a glimpse inside another human skull that that there's this idea that we all walk around um, sort of behind our faces and just have this secret inner world um, that other people aren't usually privy to. I mean, there's some version of it that comes out in conversations um, or, you know, things that you choose to share with other people um, or things that they can intuit or infer based on um, your behavior and how you treat them. But, much of our experience is this odd interaction between inner lived experience and um, and an outer world and and the gap between those two things. And so I think that what art can do and what literature can do oftentimes is give us these glimpses that we wouldn't otherwise have. Um, so sometimes I tell my students when I'm teaching, um, I've been teaching these online classes for creative nonfiction. And I will talk about how, for example, if you're writing a piece of flash memoir and you're just getting us a glimpse into someone else's life, I'll, I'll try to help build confidence by suggesting that, you know, there's just something interesting about getting that glimpse at all, that mm-hmm. glimpse into someone else's world, whether it's their mind or whether it's, you know, the details inside their house. Um, so I think about, when I used to live in Philadelphia in grad school and I would walk around at dusk and people would still have their curtains open. Mm. You could see like inside I lived in Rittenhouse square area and there are these brownstones and um, I lived like in a studio apartment at the top of one of these buildings. But um, you know, some of them were like really well appointed and, and just this life that was very unlike the life that I was living as a grad student in a studio apartment. And so it was this really fascinating interaction between inner world and outer world, just getting that glimpse um, into into another life. Um, so so I began to think about secrets when um, when I was trying to think about what my obsessions are and 
um, all of the threads of that for me in literature and in in the work that I do. Um, for example, thinking about Nathaniel Hawthorne and um, the minister's black veil and like young Goodman Brown and how fascinated mm-hmm. he was by the idea that, you know, the early settlers were these people who um, were potentially so guarded of an inner life that could have been very different from the outer form that they were expected to, you know, mm. to live. Um, and so, so that's something I think about as, as an American, you know, as a woman, as a writer, as someone who the ways in which that you're, that you're presenting yourself and, um, the, the, the ways in which, um, an inner world is just, um, such a mystery and such a, such a wonder and a delight and maybe something even potentially scary, the idea that Mm -hmm. you're walking around and, you know, whatever that statistic is of like the percentage of people who are psychopaths who surround (laughs) you, you know, um, that you just, you never really know who you're surrounded by and how, um, how that's both delightful and, uh, and, and fascinating and potentially scary. Well, you, you've raised so many interesting threads here. I, I, I've, you know, part of what you're talking about, especially the walking around neighborhoods and looking through windows, which sounds oddly voyeuristic, but it also <laughs> is kind of um, Edward Hopper-esque, right? To, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of his paintings are sort of that capturing of like this this intimate, or, or not always intimate, but this this domestic life or this life that's being lived behind that window or through that, you know, pane of glass and you're observing it. And it's a quiet moment that's not meant to be observed, or it's a it's a dramatic moment that's not meant to be observed. But often it's a moment in which the mask slips a little bit, and and something comes out a little bit about sadness or about loneliness or about isolation. Um, but it also reminds me of like um, you know sometimes there are like these photo essays of uh, of like circus clowns or of um, you know uh, ballet dancers you know, before or post-performance, when they're not in their mm-hmm. role and you see them as something else. Mm-hmm. Not the performance that they're used to doing, but there's this other sort of moment of realization that there's a different person behind that role. Yeah, it's interesting. When you're talking about Hopper, I immediately um, leapt to photography also. Mm-hmm. I started to think about I love that idea, what you're talking about, of the dramatic moment not meant to be observed or not usually observed. Um, I was thinking about Nan Golden and the, these great photographs that she has of, um, she she basically would insert herself into her friends' lives to such an extent that she would just become part of the scenery and she would capture those intimate moments, um, I mean, of, of romance and sex. And mm-hmm. she has this one um, famous image of um, what looks like sort of a post-coital moment of a man sitting on the edge of a bed and a woman is sitting kind of at a, facing another angle. And you can see the looks on their faces and they both look like slightly vacant and the woman looks a little worried and the man looks a little distant. And it's just such a kind of vulnerable moment mm. of someone else's to witness. And, um, she has, she has, um, all these great 
photos that capture um, how vulnerable and scary intimacy is. Um, but yeah, just that, that vulnerability and that access and how much is revealed that, you know, those people probably didn't even know they were revealing in those moments, mm-hmm. even though they had agreed to let this photographer into their, into their lives. Um, I love that. I love how photography can do that. Um, and, you know, and poetry or, or literature, mm-hmm. um, how the arts do that in their, in their different ways. It, it also reminds me of, um, uh, Kandinsky has a, a quote uh, or a line that I remember from from one of his writings, and he was uh, so as a painter, you don't always think of him as a writer, but he he said this really interesting thing. He said everything that is dead um, quivers, even the white trouser but- button glittering out of the puddle beneath the moonlight. Or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I can't get it exactly right because I don't have it in front of me. But, but that sense of like everything has a soul. Everything has like a story. Even the most mundane and forgettable, you know, objects in the world have a secret life, a secret soul. That's what it was. Every, you know, everything quivers. Everything has a secret soul. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just this really magical, wonderful way of looking at the world um, that – even, I mean, it brings to mind, like, um, Philip Levine's um, uh, long poem, uh, Letters for the Dead, and a lot of the, the moments that it captures of these, like, these things that are left behind by all these people that pass on. Because he begins, like, reviewing, you know, um, you know going through a scene where he's reading the obituaries, but then it becomes this imagination around what they left behind, the butcher smock hanging on the, on the peg in the corner or the can of, you know, the coffee can with keys or, or these other things that are just left there. They're tangible, physical, real things that are at once physical and real, and yet they're also like this, this ghostly echo of the people that used to own them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about objects when I was thinking um, about secrets and my obsession or fascination with secrets. Um, one of the things that I was, that I sometimes teach is, um, um, one writer's beginnings, the multi memoir. Mm-hmm. And she has this great scene where she's talking about the dramatic potential of secrets and how she learned that one time when she was, um, a child and she was asking her mother, um, this is early 20th century. She's asking her mother about the birds and the bees. And she's like basically trying to get her mother to give her the talk and her mother's, um, sort of stammering and circling around it and never can quite get to it. And, and they, they don't get to the talk, but then soon after that, another incident happens where she's looking around in her mother's dresser for something else. And she finds this box that has two nickels in it and um, like buffalo head nickels, and she goes to show them to the mother and asks if she can spin them, and her mother snatches them away and says, no, you can't spin those. Those belong to my first baby that you never knew about. And she, in that moment, like <laughs> reveals this secret. She, she couldn't bring herself to talk about where babies came from, but then suddenly outbursts this other, um, more horrible, upsetting secret about mm. this lost baby. And... Um, she says she writes um 
I found the quotation. It's one secret is liable to be revealed in the place of another Mm. that is harder to tell. And the substitute secret when nakedly exposed is often the more appalling. Mm. Just that, that notion of, um, I guess it, it's like the Freudian idea of the return of the repressed. You know, it's like yeah. you're you're trying to keep it all in, and something's going to give, something's going to come bursting out, and uh, in a way that you didn't expect it to. Um, but then, oftentimes, when I've taught <clears throat> that passage or that chapter from Welty, I've given an assignment to um, the creative nonfiction students, where I ask them um, just this exercise that can lead into, um, you know, potential material for an essay where I asked them to think about an object from their family or from their childhood or past <clears throat> that began to take on new meaning or that they mm. got new knowledge about over the course of their lives. Something, you know, is there an object about which something was revealed to you at a later mm. date so that when you were younger, it meant one thing that was potentially innocuous, and then it came to take on another meaning. Um, and that's one of those, it's like this very particular exercise, so usually I give like mm-hmm. another option. But um, um, yeah, just that notion that we are surrounded by objects that have this, you know, um, have within them sort of these secrets and this history and this sort of lingering legacy that we may or may not learn about, mm-hmm. but that there's stories and memories and attached to, you know, the things and the, the places that we, the world that we move through. Yeah, I, I actually do a, a, an exercise as well that's, um, that involves secrets, but it also involves a container. You know, I have them think about mm-hmm. a container, and then I also have them think about the secret, and then I have them write a scene in which um, that container is, it's actually a series of containers. There, there's a large, a medium, and a small container. And I then have them progressively move through these containing spaces until they arrive at the smallest container, which they then open, and the secret's inside. Um, mm. And sometimes they, they like, even the, the original secret they had intended to plant inside of that container, by the time they get to writing to that moment, a different secret will have popped in. And they'll they'll mm-hmm. talk about that when they share the piece, um, but it, it's it's that those those secrets are really powerful, um, you know, both in terms of the ones that are revealed and the ones that you can't reveal or you don't know how to reveal. You know, I, I think too. I mean, part of this conversation brings us to to like um, Oedipus Rex, you know, and and that sense of like that quest to know the truth about something you know, running into sort of the desire to keep a secret. And sometimes the secret is so powerful that it can unravel the entire world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember a, um, <clears throat> when I was getting my master's in literature, um, a um, an older professor told us at some meeting, I think it was a meeting for um, a TA practicum that I was taking, and he said... Um, Oh, we were we were discussing how to teach Hamlet, mm-hmm. and um, he talked about that first. Well, I think the first line is "Who's there?" Mm. and everything that's contained within that. And then he started talking about um, how the search for the father is at the heart of so much literature. And you know, as this like young feminist 
um, upstart that I was. <laughs> I remember thinking like, search for the father. Come on. Like, why does it all have to be about the search for the father? But then it's funny because I, I feel that um, so much of my young adulthood experience was about both kind of understanding my family legacy as a legacy of women, like that I was mm. largely raised by my grandmother and my mother. Um, but then also this notion of like, okay, what's the deal with my father? Like, you know, <laughs> why, why wasn't he around more? So I, I think within this notion of the secret and the family secret tied up for that, um, for me is the idea of like the unspoken legacy, mm-hmm. both in terms of the family, like family narratives that we all, walk around with and um, either keep to ourselves or don't know the whole story of. Um, and then also like on a, on a national level, what I ended up studying um, when I got my PhD in American literature was kind of about um, this interaction between um, the, the family secrets and <clears throat> kind of national repressions in terms of, of race and gender and sexuality mm. and how all that stuff pops out in these bizarre uncanny moments in American literature. And, um, so yeah, that for me has been a long fascination just, you know, to go back to Oedipus is this, Mm. this idea of like, you know, what are we, what are we carrying? Like what are are these stories that we're born into that we have no control of being born into? Mm -hmm. And then what do we do with that? You know, the, this notion that like being born into a web of stories can be both um, wonderful and help you build your identity. And, um, you know, Leslie Marmon Silco talks about that in Storyteller when she talks about the Laguna Pueblo notion of the web and how, you know, you're sustained by this, this web of oral tradition in her culture. And it, mm-hmm. it helps, you know, who you are and where you fit and, you know, that other people have been through this stuff before and, you know, not just on the level of myth, but on the level of like everyday stories. Um, she says, you know, if you, if you get a brand new truck and you wreck it the first day, you know that somebody else has, has a worse, more humiliating story because you've heard all the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it gives you a, a place and it helps you understand the world, but then it's also like, um, what is the burden of being born into a web of stories? I've always been fascinated by that. You know, this notion of um, being born into an identity that you, you didn't chose, you know, (laughs) you choose, you just showed up here. Um, Mm -hmm. And then um, how, how as writers, um, that's the, that's the good stuff. You know, that's sort of the rich material is like, all right, we're here. Like, what do we do with this? Um, what do we do with this muck that we're, that we're born into mm-hmm. the muck of like the, you know, the human narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the web is an interesting idea too. And it sounds like, you know, it's actually sort of the flip side. There's a, a transparency of like when you are so familiar with all the stories, then there's no hiding, right. Versus mm-hmm. the, the um, sort of the legacy of the incomplete story or the noticeable absence or the, the noted silence around certain figures or certain incidents, you know, things that we mm-hmm. don't talk about. Um, and I think both of them, both of them, as you're saying, are, are basically that's the stuff that we end up mining, you know, um, 
one helps us look, you know, I guess both are ways in which we locate ourselves, but one is a location in, we, we orient ourselves, you know, in contrast or in relation to those silences versus we locate ourselves in contrast or relation to these other stories that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this is a great way to teach undergrads, too. When I would teach um, freshman comp or, or coming-of-age narratives, um, when I teach, like, introductory literature classes um, mm-hmm. on the undergraduate level, just introducing <clears throat> undergrads to the idea of, um, you know, okay, you were born into this network of pre-existing narratives about who you are. What are those narratives? You know, let's start to get a handle on those. And then what is your, um, what is your intervention into that? You know, Mm. how are you, like you were saying, how are you going to think of yourself in relation to that? How might that be empowering? How are you going to need to think about yourself in contrast to what these expectations are or stories that have already been told about you? and, you know, and your people or where you come from. Um, So it's a great way into helping people develop as critical thinkers and then also just giving them a way into thinking about where their story fits into other stories, which is what, which is what you should be doing in college or as a writer in general is thinking about, you know, um, what's your angle, what's your intervention, where are you Mm -hmm. in relation to all of these voices that, that came before you and that exist um, contemporaneously with you. Yeah, I know. I, I was just thinking that is just the natural evolution is to go from thinking about that in terms of what you've inherited within the family or within the community into that larger question of like, what, where do you situate yourself, as you were saying, like in relation to the, all these other voices and stories that pre-exist yours in that, that common body of literature or in that complex interaction of literatures, if um, especially if you grow up at the intersection um, or the meeting place between multiple um, cultures, multiple languages, and multiple literatures. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, to return to um, Silco, um, her, her great novel, Ceremony, is very much about that. It's about someone who... Um, a Native American man who returns from a war. Um, in this case, um, it was World War II, I believe. But she was when she she wrote it um, during a time when it would have been reminiscent of, of the Vietnam experience. But mm-hmm. um, and he basically has PTSD, and you know, and also his family history is very complicated, and his his mother um, isn't there, and the rest of the family kind of doesn't know what to do with him or how to fit him into the story. And, um, and the whole process of his recovery and his healing has to do with, um, being able to kind of like regurgitate all this trauma, you know, just, just get it out of him and then figure out where he fits, um, in, in that web. And, uh, but it's exactly what you were saying about being at the intersection of more than one story. And I love that, that literature does that, you know, that it Mm -hmm. creates this empathy for other human beings trying to figure that out and also gives us a chance to reflect on, on our own experience of it. Um, I think as a poet, I, um, I love also 
the way that the secret um, or the idea of getting these glimpses into another mind is also about like just the ultimate unknowability of of human consciousness you know mm-hmm. it's the unsolvability it's like um you can think of yourself in relation to to other stories or other voices or you know other poets um but but something for me about poetry and this idea of the secret also has to do with um the idea of being a glimpse of of mystery or wonder or the ineffable mm-hmm. um something that's that isn't completely graspable, but we're trying through poetry to communicate that sense of, of wonder and, and mystery at it all. Yeah. I, I, you know, this conversation is also making me think back to, to some work I did, you know, during my dissertation on, um, on 19th century automata. And um, so the quest to, to build something that would replicate life, um, invariably meant that the maker, the creator, tried to build something based on what they thought they understood about life. And especially when it came to building, you know, automaton or automata that were human-like, you know. It's basically, I think I know what a human being is. Let me build it. And then realizing I have no idea what a human being is. I'm completely wrong. This is not a human being. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and but I love the, that you wrote about automaton. That's <laughs> automata. That overlaps a, a lot with the um, the idea of the uncanny that that yeah. I worked with. Also, just this idea of like, it's is it human or is it a thing? <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, I, I like thinking about the limits of humanity. Like, what are the edges? What are the edges of humanity? And how literature. Like it sounds like they were almost as they were trying to write about these these objects, these you know human like objects. They were creating speculative fiction almost. You know, like they're they're like, struggling, right? It's like on the verge of speculative fiction because they're trying to come up with a narrative that will make sense of what they're seeing. You know, and some of them will say, "Oh, it must be, it must be you know something to do with magnetism, right? Maybe that's what's mm-hmm. happening." Or they'll say, "Like maybe." There is, you know, some other way that they're communicating. Um, or they would say there has to be a paranormal, ex- you know, explanation. There's a ghost that possesses this machine. And, um, and so th- those are kind of some of the, the alternate narratives that they offer. Um, but I, I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, how much, you know, basically it boils down to, like, when you look at a machine or even today when we look at a computer – we look at it and we don't understand really what's going on in the inside. And so we impute some sort of awareness sometimes or some sort of um, intent. And we don't know for certain. I mean, like if we study it scientifically, we think, no, there's no intent there yet. We're not yet at a point where there's awareness. But if we don't know, then we kind of imagine narratives in which it might be possible or that our computer has a vendetta against us. Um, Isn't that what we do with other people too? Yeah. It's <laughs> like we, we just create narratives about what they might be thinking about us. I was just talking to, um, to someone at the school about this. I was asking, so my son is five years old and I was um, talking about like, well, he's at that age when, 
he's just, he's so great and he's so wondrous and interesting. He says these really interesting things, but he has sometimes these lapses of empathy that are, that are mm. disturbing, but you know, but then I think part of it is because he's like, he's a super smart kid. And so he can talk in a way that sometimes makes me forget how really little he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when he'll have one of these kind of like, you know, empathy disconnects, I'll have to stop myself and realize like, no, he's a five-year-old kid. They mm. don't have it all figured out yet. Um, but the person at the school was saying, yeah, it's sort of like around age seven that you, that you are, you do that perspective taking where you imagine another person's experience. And, uh, then I started thinking about like, yeah, some of us are still trying to figure <laughs> that out, you know, like that perspective taking, that, you know, that, just, that, like make assumptions. No, that that's a that's a really like interesting way to phrase it. I, I think um, one of the earlier um, ways of talking about automata that kind of plays into this is I, I remember going to a lecture about this uh, guest lecture from someone visiting um, the graduate program I was in, and the person was talking about fifteenth or sixteenth century um, automata like automatons that were like models of like they would replicate a system. Um, like a, it might replicate a scene, a court scene, or a world scene, or a nativity scene. But the, uh, she was saying that that these type of automata are based basically they are designed to replicate a model of the world as the maker un- understands it, and so it reinforces a particular model of the world. And I think that's basically what we're always doing with other people is like we construct in our minds a model for for who they are, and then we anticipate them to behave in certain ways. And some people we just don't understand because our model is completely, you know, founded on incorrect assumptions or, you know, or we don't recognize how similar we are with this other person. You know, our similarities, mm. our common ground, and we imagine it, oh, it must be radically different, and it turns out they're actually basically the same as us. Um, yeah, someone was telling me recently about um, being incompatible with another person, and she couldn't quite understand why, and they just kind of rubbed each other the wrong way, and she couldn't get a handle on it. And she finally said it was just, it was like we had incompatible operating systems. Mm, yeah funny how some people you just have you know um a rapport with and it's another uh, human mystery i think you know the, the people that you meet and and there's just that kind of automatic rapport and then there are other people that just like um they don't buy your shtick and they never will <laughs> This is The Lit Fantastic. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and we're having a conversation right now with poet and essayist Joanna Penn Cooper about secrets. Let's return to that conversation. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like the consciousness as working in the same way that narrative works, like what you're saying about the... Uh, automata that were models and how it was someone's idea of the world Mm -hmm. that's kind of what that's kind of what like a novel is or a poem is it's an imagined world 
but then also maybe the human mind is its own set of narratives. Yeah, I mean, we're constructing these, our novels or poems are like these simulations of the world or the simulations of like the, you know, a space in which these different people or these different ideas interact. Um, you know, so it's, I, I guess, you know, it's it's tough to say like how, you know, is there a perfect version of that? I don't think there is. I think we just struggle with every single one of them. And each time we do it, we learn something new and something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was writing an essay about um, family this past winter, this, this very short piece, and about um, the mystery of sitting next to my mom on the couch at Christmas time and how... Um, in some ways she's like the person that I know best, but still I can go visit her in Florida and sit on the couch. And she's just like this complete mystery to me. I mean, Mm. a lot of people's mothers are a mystery to them, but, (laughs) but, you know, just this, this idea that even the person closest to you can just be sitting right there next to you and you don't know what's going on in her head or, you know, you don't know exactly how her mind works or how it works in a way that's different from yours or what she's bringing to any particular conversation. Um, so it's uh it's fascinating to me to visit family for that reason to have that like instant recognition and feeling of comfort that you have with people who've known you since you were born um but then that also you know simultaneous recognition that like wow people are utter mysteries to each other like <laughs> we just you know you never really know you just kind of walk around in your own skull and make these attempts you know, mm-hmm. throw out these these lines to, to the other person and and see if they uh, see if it connects. And I think it's really fascinating too that we have in our minds sort of fixed in time frequently the the people, especially in our family, we fix them in a particular point in time, and then later we might encounter photographs of them. You know, like I remember seeing pictures of my mother like in late high school or maybe just after high school. And it's like, it's a completely different person and, you know, or, or my father when he was young and, and seeing those pictures and trying to imagine what it would have been like to be that person in that moment. That's, that's, uh, before all these other things that I know of them as defining them, before all those things had occurred, they were these other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, I love photographs for that reason. Also the, just the idea that they're, um, I was reading a Malena Morling poem recently. She was a, a teacher of mine in my MFA program. And I, um, I went back to some of her poems recently. Um, and she talks a lot about this, this issue of like the unknowability of, of other humans or of mm-hmm. just of the mystery of general, but she has this great one about, um, um, how the dead stay with us. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something about they they're looking out at us um from the framed photographs mm. um and they're steadily like moving further and further back in time away from us even but they stay with us mm. um it's just this really haunting haunting moment and kind of connects also to that notion of like the the legacies and the the sense of being inhabited by you know a space that that has these pre-existing stories in it. 
Yeah, and I, and that idea of being fixed in time in that way is is that really resonates. I remember, um, you know, whenever my father's birthday passes, um, he, he passed away back in two thousand and seven, um, and I'll catch myself thinking he he turns he turns sixty nine again this year, you know, because he keeps mm-hmm. he, he never leaves that age, you know. He's or actually it's fifty nine. He never. He passed away at 59. So he's like, he's stuck in some sense at 59, always turning 59 in my mind. You know. Mm, that's, yeah. It's funny too how your your position changes, you know. So mm-hmm. like I think about my my grandmother once telling me when I was a kid, like, well, you know, your grandfather was only in his 50s when he died. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, I didn't really know what she meant by that until, you know, I got to be an adult and I realized like the 50s are pretty young and now that yeah. i'm pretty close to 50 thinking like wow he was only in his 50s when he died that's, that's amazing i i yeah i came across a picture of my father with you know with me and my my mother and my sister um and realized in that photograph that i was older than my father was in that picture mm-hmm. and that was just a really weirdly disconcerting moment you know to realize just like that, the whole difference in age and the the change. Like I imagine, you know, it's it's like that being ahead of me. That he's always ahead of me, and yet somehow I've passed that age already, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of this weird feeling um, to kind of explore. Um, you know, when when it comes to, I guess, you know, I, I I've been really enjoying this conversation as we've you know delved into secrets and and sort of the the glimpses that they provide us of of like the the secret life or the the part of the life that we we don't often see um for for you what what have been sort of your greatest you know have, are there certain moments where you really have have felt that you know that the mass slip in this particular moment and it's really stood out to you is that oh this this is that moment. Um, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is um, the the histories of of trauma that people walk around with, and mm-hmm. you don't you don't know you know you don't know what other people are carrying, and mm-hmm. you know it's something it's kind of a truism this idea of like. Um, you should treat everybody really kindly because you don't know what their, what their experience is. But, um, but recently with the, um, the Supreme court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, um, and Dr. Blasey for, you know, having to give this testimony and then that ultimately just basically being ignored, um, Something that I was noticing on social media was um, women either sharing their stories or having this moment of saying, like, I'm so tired of sharing my story. You know, mm-hmm. like, why should I have to trot out the worst thing that ever happened to me just to um, just to be heard, just to have justice in the world? Um, so for me, that was something that was... Um, that was revealing mostly in the sense of like just this aware collective exhaustion 
and also of of women supporting each other and and the sense of of empathy and love and just kind of reaching out toward each other over you know social media or in conversations with friends in the in the real world um that to me was this moment of like wow people people all around you are walking around with with a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. you know when these narratives are being played out <clears throat> on the national level um in this almost mythic way of this woman coming out and just you know this this a powerful professional woman who mm-hmm. who is a leader in her field but is just undone by having to go before um you know members of of her government and talk about this humiliating moment from when she was a teenager um having that play out and then seeing the ripple effect through the the community that I was in was mm-hmm. this moment for me of the of the mask slipping a little bit <clears throat> and kind of you know realizing um realizing that for many people this is like um kind of a reckoning but also just kind of this moment of of exhaustion and betrayal and humiliation um that it's being played out in this national on this national level in this way i i think you know part of that too part of the mass slipping in that moment you know watching this play out as well is also that realization that um i think it, there there's this the america as a whole as a society as a culture the mass slips a little bit too and we see like how deeply entrenched these these patterns of abuse are how deeply mm-hmm. entrenched these these this distrust of of the testimony of a woman versus the testimony of a man and 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 these type of things I think you know for me I, I was also struck by that that sort of like the ugliness of of like the the scenes that play out it's so bad that you have to recruit you know a a female prosecutor to come in. And ask questions because you know that it already looks bad to just have all men <laughs> asking these questions. Yeah. And and to think about it too in terms of the, um, I, I guess sort of the, it's just I mean there is that exhaustion. There's a sense of like how much more needs to be done before these voices are taken seriously, um, before mm-hmm. these experiences are are heard, and. Like you were saying, does it always have to be through the the rehashing and and, and redisplaying of the trauma versus simply? I mean, it, it just the the double standard, I guess, was just to me that was one of the most agonizing and terrible things to watch. Is just the realization just how blatant the double standard was in terms of whose testimony could be trusted and whose testimony had to be supplemented with exhaustive amounts of you know, corroborating evidence and, and witnesses. Mm-hmm. And, and the odd performance of, of, of emotion by um, Kavanaugh. Yeah, yeah, and who gets to display you. emotion and outrage and who who is kind of forced into like a, a, a an erasure of the emotion that, you mm-hmm. know, is clear, is there. Yeah, yeah. I wrote, I, I, and, um, I was like, uh, 
writing things on Facebook as I was watching this testimony, which I I just happened to turn on. I don't even um, I guess I saw someone had had tweeted about it or something. I'm kind of revealing my, my <laughs> social media obsession here, but um, but I turned so I turned it on and I I noted the um, the phrase indelible in the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. She talked about how traumatic memory, you know, is wired into the brain and other people I know. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are poets, a lot of, um, you know, women poet friends on, on Facebook, for example. And I, it, and it was weird, this like echo of that phrase across social media. Cause I mm-hmm. picked up on it and I was just like, wow, indelible in the hippocampus. And then like, I just started seeing it echo and echo and echo and echo. And, uh, yeah, so it was this funny moment of thinking about like, wow, she studied this for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, this, how trauma, you know, affects the brain. Yeah. I think for a lot of women, there was that, there is, there was that feeling around all of this of men in our lives that care about us don't know how common this is or how many of us have either had this experience or have been in constant fear of having this experience or have had our realities very much shaped by, you know, trying to avoid having this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, yeah, at the same time, I think for me, there's this, um, there's a sense of like, so wanting to put this narrative of, victory to it you know like okay women are going to go into the voting booth and we're going to show them what's what but i had the same feeling before trump was elected you know and and what was it 53 or 54 percent of white women who voted Mm -hmm. um voted for him so so there's some entrenched like holding on to some kind of perceived privilege of being a white woman that's preventing i'm not blaming women for sexual violence at all mm-hmm. but there is also you know the betrayal of feeling like um we should be showing them what's what but are we going to <laughs> you know like this should really be a moment of of cultural reckoning mm-hmm. um but is uh, it is it gonna work um because it was pretty disappointing last time i thought it was gonna work <laughs> Yes. Like I thought I thought for sure, like, okay, like the polls look very close, but I know what's gonna happen. Women are gonna go into the voting booth and they're going to reveal their secret rage that they haven't been able to tell to the, you know, people doing these these polls. Um, but it was quite the opposite, you know. I mean, black women, um, women of color, um tried to mm. do the right thing, but then um yeah, the 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 vote of white women, I still can't wrap my mind around. And again, it's not, you know, it's hard not to, to like we found that with people scapegoating Republican women politicians and, you know, saying, well, that vote was the deciding vote. And so let's put all the scapegoating onto her. It's like, you don't want to have this conversation where you put it all back on women. But um yeah, there's some cultural reckoning that needs to yeah. happen, and white women need to get on board with that cultural <laughs> reckoning, I would say. Yeah, I, I think there's, in a way, it goes back to something you said right at the beginning, right? You talk about, um, I think it was, you were quoting from Eudora Welty, uh, about the fact that sometimes, you know, in the effort to, con- you know, to conceal one secret, a second secret is revealed that's even more appalling, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that's perhaps in some ways what we've seen happen is that the the second secret, the secret that that they are still too attached to some perceived benefit in the system, mm-hmm. even as it's oppressing. Well, this this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I think we barely scratched the surface of some of the other things that um, we had talked about possibly getting to. Um, but I, I'm absolutely delighted. Um, I was wondering if um, if we uh, if you had a couple poems that you wanted to read as we we wrap up. Sure, I would love to. That's funny. The conversation went in in such a different direction than I was assuming. I thought I would be all talking about soulful, you know, mystery and wonder. And so, <laughs> um, so let's see what what I can read that will kind of dovetail with what we've been talking about. Um, so I have this one that kind of speaks to um, women's experience and then also the notion of the the family secret um, and the mask slipping. And um, it's called The Caning. Um, It's in an upcoming, I have a chat book coming out called When We Were Fearsome. Um, If you search for the Ethel Zine on Facebook, it's coming out from them. Um, So The Caning. I have a note about this somewhere on my phone, the suffering of women, a mother leaning against the kitchen counter in her sunbathing bikini, screaming over and over and unable to stop until she sees her teenage daughter and just stops, never mentions it again. Who has had what scraped out of her is a question we could ask. All that blood, men are such chickens and could never do it taking it all into themselves and transmuting it into life, death, tumors, clots. I have never been one to find women's bodies grotesque. That scene in The Shining that terrifies a child, the beautiful woman falling old. Now when I see it, I think, it's just a woman. His whole big horror was just embracing the woman's chained body. It's where we'll all end up. These latest transformations are a doozy, but that's the transformation of consciousness, the feeling of feeling it all. How if I began keening now, I would not stop. Um, so let's see. I have another one. This one is When We Were Fearsome. Um, the title poem to this chapbook, <clears throat> and um, it's a prose poem. When we were fearsome. Are atoms made of lots of circles? Is the first thing my small son says when he wakes up. My mind swims around trying to remember if molecules are bigger than atoms. In models of atoms, when they show what they look like, there are lots of circles, I say. The new chair of women's studies at my alma mater is a man. He writes me without using my professional title to ask what I've been up to since graduation. His work, the letter says, has been mentioned on NPR. Quarks, I think, imagining electrons swimming in circles around neutrons. Before bed, I tell my son a story about when he was a small bear living with his bear family in a remote part of the forest. I describe the white snow, the black branches, 
the brightness of the cardinal on a top branch who greets him when he leaves his cottage. This is meant to be lulling. Bears hibernate in winter, he says. Do you want to be hibernating, I say? No. He is seized by a narrative impulse. His little body trembles with it. Tell how I could turn into a polar bear when I was cold and into a fearsome desert bear when I got hot. Tell how surprised everyone was. I tell all about it, the fearsomeness and the changing fur, how he once sat there half polar and half desert bear, sipping hot cocoa with marshmallows by the cozy fire. In the morning, I leave my son at school. I am dissatisfied with how they greet him. The teachers do not know of his powers, his fearsome magic. Have a good day, I say, kissing his crown. Have a good Friday at home, he says, following me to the door. Have a good shopping trip. At home, I straighten my bed, turn it down, and slip back in. I lie very still with pillow levees on either side of my body. My son is safe at school, I think, most likely safe at school. I try not to think about what the ER doctor said, what machine guns do to human organs. I only tremble a little bit. A molecule, an atom, a particle, a quark, I think. A morning dove calls, and it is lulling. Particle was the word I forgot. This is what I've been up to since graduation. Thank you so much. It's been a real delight both to hear these poems at the end and just have this conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Lit Fantastic. This episode is the last of our season, and we are so delighted to have had this conversation with poet and essayist Joanna Penn Cooper. Her books, The Itinerant Girl's Guide to Self-Hypnosis, out from Brooklyn Arts Press, What is a Domicile by Noctuary Press, and Just Out is When We Were Fearless from Ethel Zine. For more information about Joanna and her writing, you can visit her online at www.joannapencooper.net. That's www.joannapencooper.net. Previous episodes from this season can be found archived at kboo.fm. To learn more about this season and previous seasons, visit our website at www.thelitfantastic.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes from either season, we're also available on iTunes and SoundCloud under The Lit Fantastic. Thank you for joining us throughout this entire season of The Lit Fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and the other conversations and look forward to sharing with you new episodes in the new year. For more information about the upcoming season or updates on what we're doing next, please visit us online at our website. And until next season, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.